I was once visiting a friend's office where they worked, <clears throat> and uh, I saw a poster on the wall that caused me some amusement. It read, Out of the darkness, a voice said unto me, Smile and be happy. Things could be worse. So I smiled and was happy, and behold, things did get worse. And those words could certainly be taken to describe Esther's early life. She was born into a Jewish family who were exiled initially to uh, Babylon and then Persia in her youth. Uh, and her youth was marked by tragedy. Both of her parents died, leaving her to be brought up by her cousin, who it would seem was much older than she was. And finally, she ended up in the harem of a pagan king. Not an ideal start for a young Jewish girl. In 598 BC, the Jews had come under the judgment of God for their disobedience and their idolatry and were taken captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. We read about that in Jeremiah 55. The Persians then conquered Babylon, and so it became the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. And the following year, Cyrus allowed Zerubbabel and the first wave of Jewish captives to return to Jerusalem. Read about that in, in the book of Ezra. In chapter 1 of Ezra. And the events that are recorded in the book of Esther took place about 40 years after that first wave of Jews returned to Jerusalem. That brings it to around about 480 BC. To the Jews today, this book is about God's protection of his people from the anti-Semitism that they often encounter. A Jewish friend of mine told me that at the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated annually, the full story of Esther is read aloud at the synagogue. He says the, the atmosphere, he told me the atmosphere is rather like a pantomime because every time Haman's name is mentioned, the children all stamp their feet, boo, hiss, and shake rattles to drown out the sound of his name. So it, it, it turns into a bit of a, a fun session for the children. And after the service, apparently, some children dress up and act out the story. On that day, they also give gifts to their friends and to the poor. But as Christian believers... What spiritual lessons can we expect to draw from this book? From first impressions, it may seem rather difficult. It appears to be a, a relatively secular story, does not include any reference to God, spirituality, miracles, angels, or prayer. Although I suppose fasting might imply prayer, and that's just mentioned once. 
It records the drunken debauchery of King Xerxes and the appalling abuse of women that today we would call sex trafficking. To understand its relevance to us today, we need to remember that the Jews in the Old Testament are a type or picture of the New Testament church. Then, as we consider the whole narrative, we can see that it assures us that the Lord's covenant people enjoy his care and protection even in the darkest circumstances and even though they don't deserve it. The story of Esther, if we can move on to the next, uh, that's right. The story of Esther has captured the interest of artists throughout history, uh, from Rembrandt to Salvador Dali. Uh, the painting on the screen is from the 17th century, and uh, that shows Xerxes and Esther, and uh, as was the, the uh, custom with artists in the 17th century, they have shown them in 17th century costume, which is not exactly what Esther and Xerxes would have looked like, but that's the way they used to do things then. But this morning, we're going to consider the, uh, the chapter, chapter two, under three headings. The decadence of the Persian Empire, the vulnerability of the Jewish exiles, and the grace of God toward his people. First of all, then, the decadence of the Persian Empire. Uh, in chapter one, last week, we saw the king's hasty action in banishing Queen Vashti in the opening, uh, and here in the opening verses of chapter two, I think we may detect a certain sense of regret. Four years had elapsed between chapter one and chapter two, during which the king had attempted to bring Greece under Persian control, but the campaign hadn't been very successful and he returned home discouraged and depressed. The Jewish historian Josephus records that when his anger was over, Xerxes would like to have won a, uh, would like to be reconciled with Vashti, but the judgment against her was irre irrevocable. We also see in this chapter the contrast between the extrinsic authority invested in the king as an autocratic ruler who it would seem could do whatever he wanted and his implicit weakness as a human being who was really uh, so easily influenced by other people. The courtiers who had advised him to banish Vashti, seeing his regret, quickly came up with a plan that would, they knew, would appeal to his debauched self-interest. Why don't we enlarge the harem by recruiting hundreds of beautiful young girls and from them select one to be the next queen? And so it was that Esther, a beautiful young girl from a Jewish family, was selected with hundreds of others to join the king's harem. 
As Richard mentioned last week, there's a lot that we are not told in the narrative of this book. And one question that immediately comes to my mind is, was Esther a willing participant um, in this uh, arrangement, in this disgusting competition that had been organized? We're not told. We simply read, many young women were brought into the citadel of Susa. And then it's added, Esther also was taken to the king's palace. The, the passive verb was taken could mean that she was taken by force and she had no choice in it. Or it could mean that she willingly complied. And so we move on to consider the vulnerability of the Jewish exiles. How were the Jews who remained in Persia coping with the situation they were in as exiles? Well, we see the same ambiguity in the story regarding this question. We can't really tell how devout Mordecai and Esther were in their religion. It doesn't really come through very clearly. Mordecai seems to take seriously his paternal care for Esther, unless he was complicit in her being taken into the king's harem, but no mention is made of prayer or trusting the Lord. But he does seem to have had a sense of the providence of Yahweh toward his people. We do get just that feeling that he does feel that God uh, is in control. We gain the impression that Mordecai and Esther had assimilated the culture of the Persians to a very large degree. Their names were not Jewish, but Persian. Though we are told that Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah, Mordecai, Mordecai however, advised Esther to conceal her Jewish identity when she was taken into the harem. Was this a compromise? It would seem it was. Another question is, should they have returned to Jerusalem? The prophet Isaiah had declared, leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And Jeremiah also said, flee from Babylon, run for your lives, do not be destroyed because of her sin. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay what she deserves. However, the family of Esther and Mordecai were, were not, a, not alone in this respect, in, in not leaving and going back to Jerusalem. In fact, most of the exiles, the Israelite exiles, most of them chose not to return. Now, it may be thought, well, some may have been too old or infirm for the arduous journey. Um, but others may simply have felt that they were quite comfortable in Susa and unwilling to make that journey back and face the hardships of those seeking to restore the temple. It may be that some of us in church here this morning 
can identify with the predicament faced by the Jews of Esther's generation. Have we also made wrong decisions in the past? Have we strayed from the path that God has set for us? Is our relationship with the Lord today not what it once was? If so, the story of Esther may be a great encouragement to us because it teaches us that despite past failure, God is able to use his people to fulfill his purpose. Failure need not be final. The Bible includes many instances of individuals who failed and yet after repentance and restoration were used by God in his service. David fell into gross sin and yet demonstrates great repentance and is known as a man after God's own heart. Peter denied the Lord with oaths and cursings, we read. Yet Peter was restored. John Mark went AWOL from his missionary service with Barnabas and Paul, but Paul later wrote to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is helpful to me in the ministry. Through the prophet Joel, the Lord declares to his people that if they repent and turn to him, he will bless them with such abundance that it will make up for the years of blessing that they've missed. He says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Mordecai and Esther do not come across as great role models for us to follow. They, they fall far short of the devotion displayed by people like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But then so do we. And that should be a great encouragement to us because God was still able to use them to fulfill his purposes. Perhaps their most obvious compromise was to so blend in with Persian culture that Esther was told by Mordecai to keep her Jewish identity a secret. As believers, we know that we should freely confess our allegiance to Christ and we should be ready to give an answer, Peter says, to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is within us. However, as we've never faced the appalling pressures that were on Esther and have also failed that test on occasions ourselves, we must be slow to judge her. I can certainly identify with Esther in that respect. At the age of 10, I was attending an evangelical church where I heard the gospel and I made a profession of faith. But sadly, I didn't go on to bear a consistent Christian testimony. The desire to be like my friends and not to swim against the tide made me keep quiet about the faith I'd professed. Uh, and I followed the same worldly lifestyle that my friends adopted. Was I a Christian? 
Well, now when I look back, I do doubt it, but, but I'm not sure. What I do know is that at the age of 17, a radical transformation took place in my life. The inconsistency of my life, my Christian profession, was challenged by a friend who'd recently come to faith in Christ himself. Um, this happened, the impact on me was not so much by what he said, although he was quite blunt and outspoken, uh, but it was mainly that I saw the change in his life. I'd known him for a few years and I'd seen him transform before my eyes. And it was as a consequence of seeing the transformation in my friend, Gerard, that I eventually developed a closer relationship with Jesus than I'd known before. And his love for me, shown on the cross, stirred my heart to long to serve him better. Esther shows us that despite our weakness and past failure, God is able to use us to fulfill his sovereign will. So finally, we see the grace and providence of God for his people. Despite her troubled background, we read over and over that Esther found favor with other people. The Hebrew word hesed is used, and its usual meaning is steadfast or faithful love based on a promise, covenant, or agreement. It's therefore very, very close in meaning to the word grace. The overarching principle is that despite her vulnerability and compromise, God had a plan for her life. She may not have always made the right decisions, but by God's grace, she unwittingly found herself in a position to finally take a stand and obtain the deliverance of her people. God in his sovereignty is able to accomplish his purposes even through the actions of wicked men and despite the weakness and failure of his own people. Esther may not have deserved to be elevated to a position of power, but God's grace can also work through undeserving people. Though God isn't mentioned in this book, he is certainly not absent from it. And we see his provision for his people in the, what we would call, coincidences and ironic reversals that occur throughout the narrative. One such coincidence occurs at the end of chapter two, when it just so happens that Mordecai hears of a plot to kill the king and reports it to Esther. The plot fails, the plotters are executed, and we read in the last sentence of the chapter, all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. In future weeks, you will hear how that detail impacted the life of Mordecai and the whole Jewish nation. 
It may be that you are conscious of your own failure and weakness this morning. If you've not yet reached the point of trusting Christ as your saviour, then you need to remember that your relationship with God is not based on works, but on grace. St. Paul wrote, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You can never make yourself good enough for God. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the price for your sin. Have you yet confessed your sin to God and trusted Christ? If not, I would suggest that at the end of our service, when people are just chatting together, you could come up and ask me for this little booklet. It's called, How Can I Find God Today? It's by Gerard, the friend that I mentioned, who really was the, uh, the one who led me to Christ. He, he now is very much involved in working with uh, prisoners, um, uh, going into the prisons and sharing the gospel with them. Do ask me for that booklet. If you, if you think that you've not yet put your trust in Christ and you want to think it through, you'd like to look into it more deeply, just ask me at the end of the service. If you are a Christian this morning, what lessons are there for you in this portion of Scripture? Well, firstly, you can learn that your past does not stop God from using you in his service. God's grace is bigger than your past. Secondly, you can learn that God strategically places us according to his providential timing you may be in a position in your life where you're thinking why why am I here facing the difficulties that I'm facing at the moment whatever the situation you are facing remember if you are a follower of Jesus he is nearer than you think and you can cry out to him for the wisdom and strength that you need to face the challenge ahead. And thirdly, while seeking to be culturally relevant, we should recognize the need to avoid compromise with the world. And remember what Peter said when he said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason of the hope that is within you in meekness and fear. Our final hymn that we're going to sing in a moment was written by a man who throughout his life was conscious of his own weakness and failings. And he even doubted his own salvation. Yet he was used by God to write some of the most beautiful soul-stirring hymns in, of the 18th century. 
He was the poet William Cooper. Now, I know we don't, you don't normally do this, but I would like, before we sing the hymn, I would just like to read it to you throughout all the verses um, because it, it will just help you to really see the, the meaning behind these words and also to notice how well it fits the chapter, chapter 2 of Esther that we have been considering together this morning. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That 